Today's show is sponsored by The Wandering Owl. TheWanderingOwl.com Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of the sacred fire, as your hosts Sarenth Odinson and James Stovall talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? Ancestors, you are so close to us. We have recently feasted with you. We have burned lights for you. We have danced with you. Ancestors, we know you are still near, looking over our shoulders, watching our activities, spending time with us, whether we are aware of it or not. Ancestors, we need your help right now. We need your wisdom right now. Help us to understand how to be stewards for the lands that we live on. To be caretakers for the generations that will come after us. Even if we do not have children ourselves, help us to guide the youth. Help us to give a better world to them as you strove so hard to give life to give a better world, to give prosperity to us. And you still strive for these things even after your death. Help us, ancestors, to become good ancestors ourselves. Help us to nourish the generations that come as well as to nourish you. Help us to understand the things that we need to know, to have guidance, to have strength. Help us to have a vision for the things to come Ancestors, we know that our precarious position on Mother Earth is more in danger than ever. Please help us to understand what we can do to guide the future. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. I am James Stovall, joined by my good friend and co-host, Sarenth Odinson. How are you tonight, Sarenth? I'm doing well. I, I rested well today. <laughs> Good. Hey, how about that? Miracles do happen. Mm-hmm. Right? Everybody. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. You're listening to episode number eight of Around Grandfather Fire. We haven't been with you for about a week and a half, two weeks, something like that. And we're really excited tonight because we are bringing you our version of an election day special. I'm going to be dropping this episode really early in the morning, on Tuesday morning, so that way it's going to be bumping into your favorite podcast feed as you go to the polls to vote. And we're doing this on purpose because we have a great interview with our good friend Nicholas Haney today, and Nick is a a futurist, he is a novelist, a solar punk, and he thinks a ton about the future and where humanity's going and where it stands right now, and so we had a wonderful long and rambling conversation with him and occasionally with his wonderful wife Julie and and we're really excited to bring that to you today so that's our version of election day special helping you to think about the things that are to come yeah and if you want to see his work uh, his website is fireiceandsteel.wordpress.com it's known as the thought forge um, he writes on anthropology archaeology spirituality writing and other things um, he's been writing on this particular blog since about 2011, so he's got a lot of really good stuff here, and he's a wonderful person. I'm yeah. really excited we got him on here. 
Yeah, he he, he knows uh, his animistic path through and through. He sees the the living nature of all things, but applies that in really fascinating ways, especially as a science fiction author. So that is part of our, our the conversation that we have, and we I think you guys are really going to like it. Yeah, this this interview is really special. I mean, not only did we get brought into his home and we got to sit down with him in person, which is always a treat. Um, the the breadth of the topics, I think you folks are really <laughs> going to like this. I'm really excited for you folks to listen to this. Now, I will let you, everybody know up front, this was, a, as, as Saren said, we were sitting in, in Nick's home for this, and so it was our first time trying to do audio of this nature. And so I think probably next time I'm going to have us all sit a little closer to the microphone than we did. I, it's still definitely... Uh, able to hear everything but it's not quite the audio quality I normally like even though I tried cleaning up a little but I think you're going to like it anyway everything is still uh, plain to hear it just doesn't have its usual richness that I like but I apologize for that everything's a learning curve oh yeah especially since uh, you know professional sound equipment and all that takes some time to get used to and it takes experience for these things yeah you know i I got my All blue. I got my blue snowball microphone, and it works pretty well for most things. And and my beat up old laptop. But this one, if we had just been a little bit closer. But hey, what are you gonna do? It it was, it was really neat. It was a nice day when we were out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick's wife Julie made us a wonderful meal afterwards. And uh, oh my I don't know, gosh, it was yes. one of those great, you know, those days that it's a great long and rambling conversation, and you get to see, uh, as usual with the show, how we weave things together. And uh, a lot of different topics come together. So uh, I I do want to let everybody know that we're going to be, uh, Sarah and I have promised ourselves that we're going to do some episodes that are just us coming up pretty soon. We've done a couple interviews mm-hmm. in a row here, and we do have quite an assortment of listener questions and some things to get caught up with uh, with you all from our perspective, what's going on with us. So that'll be coming up fairly soon as well. So we're just enjoying the format of this podcast allowing us to do a little bit of everything so we're experimenting a bit yeah and it's it's going to be interesting now that uh, the election cycle is going to be over soon and we won't have to be mum about things as much so we can kind of let our flags fly if you will (laughs) our geek flags fly a bit more unfurled (laughs) oh my gosh yeah because i've I've got shows to talk about i've got comics to talk about i've got new books to talk about there's all kinds of things i'm participating in now no remo this year so i'm trying trying to write my own novel so there's my god right i know it oh that's intense yeah i know it i know it i got a little bit behind i think i got uh, four thousand some odd words out yesterday because i was a bit behind and, and trying to get caught up so after we sign off here that's my next project is back to the keyboard and see if I can get my word count back up to where it should be. Excellent. Good luck. Yeah, well, you know, nothing that Red Bull can't handle. Damn right. (laughs) (laughs) Praise the goddess Kafina. That's right. That's right. I've discovered that I really like the cranberry Red Bull. That's uh, dangerous (laughs) stuff. It's awful. Tastes tastes like cranberry juice. You don't realize it's Red Bull until you're bouncing around the room later. Of course, I probably should not drink the whole four-pack in the same day, but, you know. No. It's NaNoWriMo. You're supposed to use the entire month. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, you know. I also have a, a, a quick mention real quick here, you guys. Anybody that's in the area, there is a psychic fair here in Jackson. 
that's coming up this Saturday where I'm going to be doing cleansings. So if anyone is in the area and wants to take a drive in for that, I'll be available for cleansings there. So well, excellent. I, I've got nothing on my end at this moment. Uh, I've just got a lot of personal work that has to get done and then I can relax. <laughs> that's right. That's good though. Get that taken care of. So. Mm-hmm. Well, so. I'm looking forward to the relaxing bit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up there unless you have anything else to add, Sarah. Nope. If you uh, want to find the show, you can find it at our anchor.fm and you can look for around the grandfather fire. We're on there. You can leave us audio messages, applause. You can drop us, uh, segments we can use on the show. Uh, my email is sarnth at gmail.com. My Twitter is at sarnth. My blog is sarnth.wordpress.com. And yours is? Yeah, I'm on, on Twitter at James at the Owl, and Instagram as Wandering White Hat. The show also has a Facebook page. If you're not a fan there already, you would have seen the, the announcement for our, our Election Day special there a couple days ago. Um, also, we have a Tumblr page, so you can look for us there. We're all over the place. All right. Well, without further ado, I think uh, it's time for us to dive in. All right, Nick, welcome to Around Grandfather Fire. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. All right. So the reason that I was really wanting to have you on was because um, you are a, a... person who writes a lot, and I appreciate that. You have a lot of blog posts, you're an author, you have books, and um, you approach things in a way that I find very interesting because when you're talking about animism or ancient uh, practices from Europe, you approach it with a lot of anthropology and with a lot of archeological sources. But what I find actually in a way more fascinating is your voice that I don't hear a lot especially with the Reconstructionist movements, in that you're a futurist. You're a self-described solar punk. <laughs> you talk about the future of where humanity is going, and you incorporate that with animism. And I find it fascinating that when so many different traditions are being reconstructed and they're only looking backwards, that a lot of your stuff looks forward. Yeah, um, th- that's the kind of thing that I, I think Sarah and I have had that conversation before, but... Since we're doing this live, I guess we should probably recap that. <laughs> right. But mm-hmm. it's it's not that I don't think there's not wisdom there. I actually, you know, support Reconstructionist, that kind of thing. That's that's really cool and amazing stuff. But I also come at it from the perspective that, you know, in a very real way, we're not Vikings or Druids anymore. The, the world, as it was, is, has kind of moved on. And now we're facing things that in a way our ancestors couldn't have imagined. Right. Like... I mean, the Industrial Revolution. What... Yeah. what I mean, the, the cotton gin alone was, was revolutionary for its time, inspiring the King Ludd movement. Absolutely. And <clears throat> now we're looking at, you know, actually moving out in, into the solar system and we're talking about asteroid mining and nanotechnology and, and right. cybernetics. Right. And I, I firmly think that this isn't the kind of thing they ever would have thought of. Like, even coming at the cotton gin, you, 
you look at you know an international harvester or a John Deere now, and that's as far as removed from that technology as right. that was from the start of civilization. Like right. we're we're moving at this pace that is sometimes honestly hard to keep up with. And the tractors out that, that operate on the farm that's behind our farmhouse, they use GPS locating so they don't miss any footage that's possibly tilled. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of crazy that, yeah, like our ancient ancestors would have thought of that. This thing up in space with the scars is going to help guide us to make sure we don't miss any co- rows of corn. You'd be like, what? That makes no sense at all. <laughs> and even going a step farther on that, as you said, I like the futurist stuff. They're already developing fully automated ones where, mm-hmm. you know, they are automatically figure out the corns are corn rows are this far apart I'm going to set this in and run my own path and I'm going to do this entirely without a driver and then I'm going to dump all my data to your farm based server and tell you hey there's some weeds here we should probably deal with that I mean we're, we're, we're talking about tilling tilling proper as we know it now like rototillering yeah. wasn't a thing for most of human history we were literally just scraping the top layer of topsoil using cattle and human power and just flopping it over onto itself. I mean, actual tilling has only got a pedigree of what? 500, maybe 300 years? Interestingly enough, we're, we're back to no-till methods where very little soil is getting removed anyway, so yeah, it comes a full circle in that regard. Why you got things like the dust bowl and stuff because right. the, the topsoil got so bad it blew away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alright, so Sarah and I are a little more familiar with you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into animism and, and, and being uh, such a prolific author. <laughs> um, well, you've, you've touched on some of that already, and I, I wear a lot of hats. Um, as you said, my background is in, academic background is in anthropology and archaeology. I got a bachelor's there. I've actually done field work on Michigan State University campus. We found the first, na- the, the team I was in found the first Native American campsite on the MSU campus. Oh, nice. Wow. That was really exciting. And we also did some volunteer work out in Flint with the Saginaw Chippewa tribe. They were having a, basically a, a knockdown section where a bunch of houses were getting torn down, and they said, this is the deadline for the new houses go up. So they, they basically, you know, just backhoed it, and we were there helping them screen everything and keeping track of artifacts and that kind of thing. But um, I've been, I guess, a practicing animist for about 10 years. I've been a hunter officially for 15, but I've spent most of my life in the woods, literally and figuratively. <laughs> and... Other than that, it was actually funny with the writing. I got six novels out now. Something we're going to probably be talking about is the Animism Manuscript. It's officially the untitled project, but I think we've been calling that the <laughs> This Book is Alive project. Right. <laughs> this Book is Alive. Um, and other than that, like, I, as so many in, in my generation fell into a bad period of unemployment right after college and writing in many ways helped me keep my sanity and now it's so ingrained as a habit I can't put it down <laughs> like I feel incomplete if I'm not so that's um definitely worst habits to have right, right? <laughs> yeah yeah definitely 
And so I might as well put it out there. You can find my books on Amazon. You search for Nicholas Haney, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S. And the first six that pop up are mine. That's the Elder, Elder Blood Saga and Liminal World, which has been out for about three months now. We've been really getting great feedback on that. And we can come back to that. That definitely has a lot of animism. Yeah, I was going to say, we, we, we right need to talk about that mm-hmm. one. Because that one's... And my primary blog is fireiceandsteel.wordpress.com. That's where I do most of my work. I'm pretty active on Facebook, though I'm also kind of reclusive. I'm on Twitter at fireiceandsteel, but I almost never use that. <laughs> That's just such a strange platform to me. So if people want to grab a hold of you, Facebook is probably the ideal. Facebook or my blog has my contact information as well, fireiceandsteel at yahoo.com. I know it's dated I'm behind on the whole Gmail thing, <laughs> but I've had that email so long it's almost impossible to unplug from anything. Right, right. I, I know because I'd forget passwords so fast about that email. Because <laughs> you also do the, the fire, ice, and steel. You also do some blacksmithing. Yes, yes, I am. I'm hunter and outdoorsman. So I'm the owner of the White Wolf Shop, which is at the White Wolf Shop on Facebook think that's right because that's a funny story there so it, it turns out there's a, a lot a lot of white wolf shops out there everything from from archery to uh all kinds of strange things and we've already been contacted by you know white supremacists because apparently there's a white wolf white supremacist group oh great <laughs> yeah so I've been confused at at least one event for a, a white wolf shop in Slovakia and I'm like that's not exactly right <laughs> so that's one of those things. But yes, I'm also a blacksmith, uh, a craftsman, the outdoorsman. A lot of hats, as I said. Yeah, right, right. So that's really cool, though. I mean, I, it's it's interesting. I mean, I like the whole uh, blacksmithing and, and outdoorsman and the, the contrast between that. Because your books are are really uh, science fiction. Yes. But with, especially the liminal world, with a real strong dose of animism. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's kind of the the mythology, the anthropology. Like, I'm really grateful to my academic background because all of that reinforces my writing. So there can be, you know, beliefs and myth systems that aren't exactly what you call science fiction. Like, there can be the belief in spirits right alongside the high technology and that kind of thing. And, and sometimes I wander back and forth across that sci-fi fantasy line. You right, know, right. get that weird blend sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it's really fascinating, and it makes for some really great character dynamics because you can have two people on polar opposites <laughs> where one is like, this doesn't make sense scientifically, you're full of crap. Well, I believe this. How dare you challenge my worldview? <laughs> <laughs> and it really makes for some great tensions. So correct me if I'm wrong, Liminal Worlds there, it really, it, it's, you kind of explore a little bit that overlap between animism and artificial intelligence. Is that correct? A- absolutely, absolutely. So a- as opposed to my, my Elder Blood Saga, which is far future, that's like 24th century kind of thing, the Liminal Worlds is near futures. So the year in about that is about 2078. So it's really based on the here and now right. extrapolated out. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the cyberpunk, solarpunk stuff we were talking about earlier. 
because in the world it's really kind of an extension of kind of the corporate system we're in now. Like there is some real, like the world's dominated by about four big technology giants and they do bastard things. They catch you in their servers. They can fry you via VR. And nobody bats an eye at that because of the law system. But on the other side of that, you get a lot of renewable energy. Toronto is one of my big settings in Liminal Worlds. And there's one of my favorite scenes. They go up in the, oh God, the tower. CN Tower? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you're actually looking out. And it's just a really great world building scene because there's, greenhouses that have not only solar glass but that can be polarized based on where the sun's at in the year and you can see turbines out in the distance and just every roof is covered in vegetable gardens solar panels you know the trains running by because there's a big train station they're all covered in solar panels all fully electric and then there's still, you know, big corporate logo and right, just right. it being like, hey, don't mess with well, I mean, crap. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an unfortunate truth, and we, we experience it all the time, where to right. leverage the kind of money and technology that you need to make some of these new things happen, in the current system, that requires a big company. And that's how it, it is one of those things that's a, a light and dark balance, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I hate corporations at the same point in time, they're the only things that can get things done that we want done in our current system, so striking that balance is always hard. Yeah, um, and unfortunately, I haven't, I haven't actually read through Liminal Worlds yet, I haven't, it's on my to-read list. <laughs> um, so my question, I guess, for you is kind of jumping off of that, do you think, uh, in your animist perspective, do corporations have souls? <laughs> <laughs> this is let's one just, big side. <laughs> let, let's throw out the hard question right now. <laughs> and that is fine. This is a, a very much a yes and no question where I'm, I'm really uncertain on, on how to splice that. Because in a way, absolutely. Yep. Like we've all talked before. I'm going to have stopped doing that because live audience. <laughs> They're not privy to these conversations. <laughs> but um, we'll remind you once in a while. Because in the way I understand spirits and gods and, and, and things that are kind of bigger than our human selves are very much in a communal kind of collective way. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at the corporation as kind of a collective agency to get things done. I mean, yes, especially when you consider corporations often have their own internal culture and beliefs right, and right. value systems. And a lot of them boil down to make as much money in as little time as possible. <laughs> their own internal religion. Yeah. And and they do, absolutely. Like Google and Apple oh. come immediately to mind. Mm-hmm. Their corporate culture is intense. Something else. Yeah. They actually have arcologies. Yeah, uh, they do. Google has its own internal structure where mm-hmm. they'll let you. There, they have uh, I think apartment structures or something like that. Yeah, on yeah. on Google, you never leave. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which yeah. Is, actually gets into that kind of scary territory, like back when we were company towns. Yeah, company towns and company script and some other yeah. things that are actually very cyberpunk and Shadowrun oriented mm-hmm. concepts. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and I think it's Apple's newest campus. Looks like a big freaking spaceship. Like, it's this big round thing. 
and it's this big circular oh, yeah, structure, that. and it's it's just really cool from an architectural perspective, slash kind of terrifying knowing it's just raw size and what's going on inside there. So from that perspective, yeah, corporations are persons, and yeah, I cringe at that too with with Citizens United and that kind of thing. Because from that perspective, it's should this person have this much voice in our political system, in our social system. Right. And that runs into really hard territory of, well, can we selectively censor things if they're absolutely dominating social life in a way none of us can get away from? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. This this actually gets to an interesting, interesting question of um, if... The means by which you are heard are controlled by a corporation. Should we update the idea of censorship? Because if, say, you get deplatformed on Twitter or, or Facebook, but they're not—they're not the government, so it doesn't technically fall under the yeah, definition the, of censorship. But is it censorship? private entity? Exactly. So you can still talk; you just can't talk here. Yeah, and that. <laughs> that that is one of those times that is a deep deep rabbit hole but in in the general in the wide view our laws are definitely behind in in so many ways at the at the pace of change mm -hmm. especially technological change like I, I get in this conversation with other people like talking about everything from copyright laws to first amendment issues to censorship this is one of those things that has come up a lot with, you know, rising alt-right and that kind of thing, that we're pretty much the only industrial country in the world without hate speech exemptions. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's fines or jail time in countries like Germany because, you know, they lived through that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They've been there, done that. They've been there and Didn't done like the result. Mm -hmm. Where, whereas... In a way, we're kind of badly in a rough place to really deal with that kind of thing, especially with, as Saren pointed out, Twitter and that kind of thing. Twitter can deplatform them, but a public university can't because right. of the nature of the First Amendment. And I, I question the usefulness in a, in a, in a way of deplatforming because even with the censorship laws that Germany's put into place, including things like any video games that they have over there can't have Nazi imagery in them. Wolfenstein was a classic example of this being put into place. They actually outright banned it until they fixed graphics in it. I think Wolfenstein The New Order and Wolfenstein 2, uh, which is The New Order, um, they started backing off a little bit on it. But when you actually like peel back the underbelly of Germany, there's still a very active, very hostile neo-Nazi movement despite censorship laws. I think there's a conversation to be had on how useful censorship laws are. Oh, absolutely. And I'm really trying to phrase it in a way where I'm not coming down on one side because even using Germany as an example, there's a lot of different varieties. Like Canada has hate speech laws. And they're right. phrased very, very differently and enforced very, very differently. And yet even in Europe, we've seen 
And if I'm getting too far from the point, just let me know. No, no, this but, is... Yeah, you know, we kind of... Yeah. We've seen the rise of, in the recent parliamentary election, of far-right parties. Right. Some of them are probably neo-Nazis, you know, trying mm-hmm. to parse that nuance. Sweden's just had theirs a couple of weeks ago, and while all... They have, like, eight parties in their par- parliament compared to our two-party system, but... Pretty much all of the other parties have pretty much already said they're not going to work with them. Right. But it puts them in this place where they're going to have a rough time building a coalition government because the far right won so many seats. And Sweden, the kind of place, has those hate speech laws that, that we don't. And they're very different from Germany's and enforced very differently. So that is, as Saren, Saren said, a, a very interesting conversation. Right. So let's take that and bring it back into animism, because there's this soul to this corporation, this political party, and it has the ability to glomp its hand around the mouth of a collective of citizens. I mean, you're talking about a spirit with incredible reach. To, you know, From my perspective, a lot of these companies, spiritually speaking, look like the old gods of H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> a, a, a little bit, and... And that, that's why um, one of the reasons I love Kim Stanley Robinson and so much, one of the big images he uses is that the, uh, the capitalism's like an octopus. Like, it's got all these tentacles. They grow back. It grows new ones. And it can really get anywhere its beak fits, right? And so it can go through, like, get through almost anything and make a new self. So, yeah, like you said, that, that gets into really kind of scary territory when one big spirit entity go, can go, no, just all you just keep quiet. Right, right. Don't do these things. Especially when, you know, it's getting into places like the government and that kind of thing, which is supposed to be the everyday person's outlet, you know, in a democratic society. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I think that's the part that makes me nervous. Right. It, it reminds me, you say Lovecraft, but I think of the Giants. <laughs> Honestly. Because you know, they're, they're just voracious uh, yeah. creatures of, of uh, id mm-hmm. that just want to consume, 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 mine, mine, mm-hmm. mine, now, now, now. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, yeah, and but... as far as we, from a, the perspective of a villager or, <laughs> or a, a small tribe or something, they are huge and giant forces that we can't control. We can only try to work around and maybe if we're lucky, Something else big will help us stand up to it eventually, or run and hide. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So it, it reminds me very much of the of the giants in a lot of ways. So so the RFID shields are like a troll course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in a way, I kind of see bigger spirits in that way as as community spirits. You know, so you can get spirits of cities and yep. tribes and communities, but also political parties like. Republicans and Democrats have their own party spirit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, the, the one, I'm just going to say it because I am not shy about my political be- beliefs, the manifestation of the Republican Party sits in the White House right now. Oh, yeah. And yeah. If you want to see what that looks like in human form, you're kind of looking. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, I mean, even when you're talking, you know, back to the book for a second, uh, Liminal Worlds there, I, I was thinking that it's very telling in a lot of ways that Toronto is your your idealized city because 
other countries are making progress in these areas mm -hmm. and we are definitely going backwards right now and so it's it, it's amazing to me that i mean it makes complete sense but it's also astounding at the same point in time that we we got to look you know for we're sitting here in michigan a very short ways away to look for something that's a much more idealized setting because it's just not going to happen here yeah and uh, I think it's important to say from from the book perspectives, the United States then is not what we know of now. In the book, there is an, an entity that, that's come out that is kind of EU and UN expired called the UN Global Council, which is basically a global parliamentary body. And Toronto belongs to that body, so it basically has free trade. It free trade and free movement among any other members, mm -hmm. in which case at the state in the book, because the, the federal government is not as powerful as it is now, includes cities like Detroit and Chicago, as well as former states. That's great concept. So Chicago to Toronto, <laughs> be, being kind of our home economic region, right. you know, our big mega city region, is basically has EU-style free travel. Right. I think one of the, the main characters actually comes from Detroit. No big deal. No. <laughs> yeah, but deal. I mean, it, it like from a sci-fi standpoint, that's you're, like you said, you're projecting outward, which means that somewhere in that process, either the United States got smart enough to sign up with this, or, or our section of the United States. But if the federal system is a lot weaker, it implies that there was some sort of huge problem, probably from this backward movement that we're experiencing right now, where Yes. Cities and areas, <laughs> economic regions here in the United States had to say, um, yeah, we're going to kind of hold bail on this whole United <laughs> States concept because it's not working so well. Yeah, that is is something I'm working on for the blog right now, which is kind of how I approach this from world building because I did extrapolate out a lot of trends right now. And a lot of that kind of came together in Toronto, as funny as it is, not only as a, a mega economic region for right. the Great Lakes area, you know, kind of the whole I-94, 401 corridor, yeah, got yeah, my exactly. highways, right? Right, right. It goes I-94 Chicago through Detroit, Detroit and then through Toronto all the way, essentially to New York. Yeah. New York. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Buffalo type area. Almost a straight shot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a huge economic region. And it really came down to cities being being at the economic heart of things right mm -hmm. so regardless of what you know big picture politics is going on <laughs> toronto's moving on with its stuff because it's a huge international multicultural city and right. a major port right well so when, that yeah go ahead go, goes into kind of my archaeological background i mean we can point at cities right now like athens and argos Seven thousand years old. They've lived through more empires than you can imagine. Right, right. They're still continually occupied, and there's there's that um, from an animistic perspective that uh, memory of complex systems. Like you could literally dig into these cities and see their yeah, memories yeah. going back seven thousand years. Like these cities, these city spirits have a memory that, that's hard for me to honestly comprehend. Right. And you know, some of them go back to the dawn of civilization. Well, I mean, your own example with MSU campus and Flint. I mean, you're literally not even that far down in the earth if you get right down to it. Yeah. You know, you're barely breaking through the crust. And, and we're 
and Earth's memory is long. Yeah, we're digging right. into the memory of the Earth, and that's that's something that I'm just starting to develop because Luna Worlds isn't the end. Like my wife Julie, she already knows kind of my plans for the long arc, and I'm not going to spoil any of that here. Good. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Julie, who you might hear occasionally here and there. She's we're, we're privileged to be having dinner made. Say hi, Julie. Hi. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I. So I, if I can say that you and Sarah and I, we've had a lot of at least online conversations and some face-to-face conversations because I think <laughs> you're a lot more optimistic about the future than we are. Way yeah. more optimistic. Like, yeah, I, I find myself kind of middle ground. Figuring, yeah, we humans, we're gonna, we'll, we'll figure it out, but it might not be very pretty. Uh, uh, Sarenth, yeah, a little bit more. Uh, Everybody, uh, right, looks, right. Uh, looks at the dower right. shaman sitting with us. The dower shaman, Mad Max with a big hammer. And hey, <laughs> hey, I'm not wishing for the future. I'm just saying it's a possibility. I mean, that's. I mean. I, I have to say, Nick, I, I love your optimism. I really do. Because it's a very nice um, counterbalance to where uh, I'm very much a, a plan for the worst, hope for the best kind of a guy. And I'm almost too scared to hope too much that we can pull <laughs> ourselves out of the, the morass we're in. Right. Because, I mean, maybe it's just because JMG got to me first before some of the people <laughs> you read. But... Um, John, John, Art Druid, former Art Druid, John Michael Greer has written a series of books that affected me when I was I was much younger, and I've kind of grown up alongside a lot of his works. And so my perspective very much is in the long descent as a, a very real probability. I really hope Solar Punk comes true. <laughs> I really hope it does because that's a hopeful future. That's it's not all all. Um, sweetness and light like some of its <laughs> opponents make it out to be I, I think that's a very unfair characterization of mm-hmm. solar punk and I'll be honest I made one of those comparisons before mm-hmm. you know so I've, I've been there I, I am very cynical about the future on the other hand we're already starting to see cities making the strides you're already extrapolated out from in your work um, you know, Toronto I think Dallas uh, yeah. Various cities have made the exact same kinds of dedications and are doing on-the-ground real work right now constructing these things that appear in your books. So it's not like this is really like far-fetched sci-fi with pew-pew lasers. It's, <laughs> I mean, the, the green gardens are available. I mean, all, all the stuff that you've put in Liminal Worlds is available to us right now. You can literally go purchase a bunch of sod and with the proper building techniques put it on your roof and start growing stuff. Although it's funny, I was just trying to compare in my mind. I'm trying to think. So, like, when I think about Nick's uh, thoughts about the future and his, his like, optimism level, I, I think, like, Star Trek Next Generation. Yep. Right? <laughs> yep. Where, where, what would you say yours is? My hope for the future is... At, so, to me, Star Trek is a far-flung hope because of the sheer amount of resources it requires to build right. a single starship. Uh, my hope... In terms of media, kind of my middle ground would actually be kind of where Liminal World sits, because just from a realistic standpoint, my, my, that's kind of like the height of where I dare to hope. 
my my lowest expectation for the future is the human race buries itself in garbage and goes away for a while because I don't think the axiom's coming to save us. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking about it, and like you know, so we got Star Trek: The Next Generation. I was trying to figure out what because my I always think of the future. I'm kind of I'm kind of Firefly Serenity. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm kind of like there's still going to be corporations there's still going to be these big governments we're going to improve but in what areas are we going to improve and, and, and that sort of thing so I don't know I, I kind of come down on the uh, Firefly sort of area which isn't necessarily bad but you know no. you were talking about I mean uh, truth be told I actually see us going into a shadow run kind of a thing because I mean, of where we're at yeah yeah I understand it's just you mentioned the background and that sort of thing. You know, I'm like, my heritage is Slavic, so it's like, we just hope tomorrow sucks slightly less than today sucks. That's kind of... <laughs> but it probably won't, you know? That's kind of... <laughs> but I mean, I mean, when, I mean for, for ideally, I would like, you know, folks like us to, to have tribal living communities that support each other, that not only support each other, but through our collective work, supports the people around us. And I, I would like our, our communities to become more inclusive while also being more uh, able to take care of its own stuff. It bugs me that I have to rely on uh, DTE. And every time the power the power goes out, you, know, you have to call DTE, you can't, you know, there's, there's no, okay, we'll just fix the solar panel or we'll just... Right, yeah, it does, yeah, exactly. It, it gets very Every time the power goes out, I'm like, why don't I have that windmill yet? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's simple stuff like that, but it's also, um, I would argue, a little more advanced even in that, you know, power generation for us comes easy, whereas food generation is a lot harder. We flip-flop from where our ancestors are at because mm-hmm. food generation was like, this is life. Whereas we're like, in this in this situation, which is I think rather unique in history, where we would have all this free time if we weren't slaving away in somebody else's job atmosphere. <laughs> right, this is true. Yeah, and, and yeah. I, I could go deep into that. <laughs> but I, I wanted to back up a little bit because you've all said so much, and I'm just trying to keep it all in my brain. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm going to have bad verb. <laughs> and that's the thing. Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm generally optimistic, but I, I also consider myself very, very realistic. And t- to, to me, that's why I have a hard time settling on any one future. It's like, right. well, here's our options. And, you know, it's that dystopian, utopian thing. Solar punk, as I understand it, is not utopian. No. And, like, I have been on brutal, brutal forums where some public person has posted a solar punk thing and they're like so this is basically Star Trek I'm like no Star Trek is far future it's what 24th century with a whole lot of crap we can't imagine right now like we don't have dilithium (laughs) crystals or replicators or you know teleporters or anything like that and if and I'm just going to admit it, one of my big introductions was Next Generation. Oh, yeah, I of course. I watched that mm-hmm. with my dad, and that's part of where the optimism comes from. I yeah. love it. I love Patrick Stewart. I'm not going to even lie. I watched the original Trek with my dad, so generational <laughs> difference there. We had to come back and watch that. And, and Kirk's good, but I'm still solidly a Picard and a Cisco. I love Deep Space Nine, too. Mm. <laughs> I, I want Kirk if we're going to fight someplace. Yeah, yeah. If... 
But for like, like if day-to-day day management and the occasional crisis that involves something sciency, I'll take Picard like all day. I'll take my Cisco against your Kirk any day. <laughs> oh, see, it's no. true. No. It's true. No, though. I can't do it. It's, it's, it's the, the the part where where he hits Q in that episode. <laughs> you hit me. Picard never hit me. I'm not, not Picard. Picard. <laughs> <laughs> and I I just absolutely love that. Sorry, Kirk, but Cisco's still my number two. <laughs> yeah, well. But Kids uh, first. on all of that's what you got to introduce to introduce you first. Anyway, so. <laughs> well, take it or leave it. But c- coming back to that, like it, it's it's not utopian. It's what can we do better with what we have now? So can let's, I, can I, let's when I get a when you get a sec here. Help define solar punk for us a little bit. We've used the term, and I know people are familiar with steampunk. Help us understand solar punk. Okay, so the the so the um, the punk genre generally, we know there's a lot of them. There's cyberpunk, and I'm gonna try and give examples. I don't think you guys have already mentioned Shadowrun. That's kind (laughs) of your, your archetype. Cyberpunk. You can also go into uh, William Gibson's Neuromancer. Yes. Oh, yes. oh, that's just so amazing. Um, we can come back to that because the, the, <laughs> the second book in the Sprawl series has a lot of the, the voodoo spirits in it, kind of the AI inspired. And that okay, was one right. of my big inspirations. That's called uh, Count Zero is that one. Mm-hmm. But... So that's kind of cyberpunk, steampunk, you know, that, that's definitely got a lot of the Firefly, that kind of thing in it, kind of that. And each of them is really kind of defined as what's the energy source of the day. Right, Like right. cyber is definitely high electric, high tech, low life, high tech kind of thing. And steampunk is, well, kind of that early railroad steam powered aesthetic. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's also diesel punk which is really 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 present kind of the world war ii aesthetic yeah that's uh, in wonder woman is, right. is uh, very the other the example i always use for uh, uh diesel punk is actually hellboy yes yeah. hellboy is very diesel punk as well as is the new wonder woman there's actually, a that's lot pretty of interesting that in there. yeah because i i define myself my genre is, is diesel punk easy yeah so and then there is for, for the gamers things like atom punk where it's nuclear power fallout Fallout is very good at being dystopian about atom punk. You know, the world ended because we all nuked ourselves. <laughs> all or this uh, rapture with uh, Bioshock. Yeah, Bioshock you, is yeah. definitely very, very atom punk and very kind of like, sort of steampunk too. Steampunk and very right libertarian. Very dystopian. <laughs> very dystopian. But you also go to Deuce X, which is also a sci-fi or later. Deuce X is very cyberpunk, very mm-hmm. contemporary cyberpunk. Like Detroit's one of the huge cities in that, and I love it. I love it. Yep. <laughs> and I got a book up there called Homo Homo Deus by Yavol Navari, which actually covers a lot of that. Where you're gonna get this split, and very much Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos kind of thing. God, there's so many trains of thought I'm trying to follow right now. <laughs> where you're actually gonna, it might be something we have to face where a technological elite is literally gonna be better than everything that we are. Mm-hmm. Because of cybernetics or bioengineering or that kind of thing, they could be stronger. They could design their babies to be prettier. Like, all that aside, I'm getting getting too far off track. So, Solar Punk. What is Solar Punk is. Yeah, 
is kind of a reactionary movement about decades worth of dystopian zeitgeist, which kind of makes sense, you know? Generations, yours a little bit, but the generation before you? Cold War, mm-hmm. World War Two. You know, the, the world didn't look pretty when you're getting duck and cover drills in right, your class. Yeah, exactly. You know, and our fiction has absolutely portrayed that for decades. Like, dystopian is our hot thing. And it, it's slowly changing, but it is probably the, mo- the, the biggest market right now as far as fiction. Mm-hmm. Solar Punk is kind of a reaction to, against that. And ask kind of how can the future be better based on what we have now. Right. So it looks towards sustainable technologies, solar being defined in its name, wind power, that kind of thing, and also kind of progressive social justice, that kind of thing. Like if we're gonna point towards the start of a solar punk nation, it'd be Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Because they're a lot farther ahead than we are. Mm -hmm. And it it brings with that the optimism. But it's not utopian. It's we're not going to get this right. There are going to be bad things happening to good people. And possibly how could we avoid that? Right, right. Like being honest, we, we have the technology, we have the ability to make things better. And it's kind of exploring that through the lens of diversity and multiculturalism. Because one of the big things is non-white male central characters. Right, right. Like, a diversity, it falls into, there's at least, oh, I wish I could remember his name, at least one indigenous solar punk author that springs to mind. I can't remember his name now. But also things like... Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Uh, that oh, yeah, that is right. Afrofuturism, which plays so heavily into solar punk. Nice. And yeah, they did the the Marvel vibranium thing. You know, that's not a right, real right. element. Right, right. <laughs> or if it is, that's not what it does. And it's right. an element that can do anything. That's yeah. the important part. Oh, so, so okay. <laughs> but things with like, you know, the, the city in the forest, the whole aesthetic of Wakanda is very solar punk. Mm-hmm. And then there's the magnetic train, right? And right. the flying cars, the secret ships, you know, all that is very solar punk in a way. And you know, being an author, we all take our liberties. Right. We're probably not going to have the cool spaceships anytime soon. <laughs> but it's that that basic idea that. That why do we have to give in to the dystopian view? Mm-hmm. Right, right. No, that's a, that's a why. Good point. Why does the world have to be worse? Right. Off? And you saw. I think, although the the strong cultural connections uh, in Black Camp, Black Panther, representing people on screen that they have not been represented before, especially in that way, um, but it resonated outside of those communities because it was so optimistic in a lot of ways. When <clears throat> when we I mean, who didn't cheer when at the very end when, uh, uh, spoiler alert, you know, they're setting up those uh, uh, technology centers in the inner city. And I'm like, I was excited. I'm like, I wish I could do that right now. I wish I could support that right now somehow. And, you know, we can, obviously. There are places our money can go. um, But um, 
I'm, that I'm, optimism, I think, is what a lot of people latched on to. So when I was in high school, I was part of this nonprofit called Computer Challenge. Mm-hmm. And what we would do is we would go to some of the uh, worst off areas where they were still using completely outdated technologies. This was in, in the early 2000s. Um, 2001, I think, was when I actually officially joined the board of directors. They had me go through leadership training, all this extra crazy stuff. Well, okay. But what we ended up doing was we'd go into inner cities and teach them. We'd buy them the computers, and then we'd train them how to use it in the hopes that you know they could go into the workforce or just, just live their lives with a better understanding of the technology that's actually out there. And so, I mean, we sure as hell weren't Wakanda coming in with, with all this great, tech, this great vibranium. I really wish we could have. Um, but... I was doing things like I was teaching kids from uh, like Cope Academy was like is like the last stop before you're out of the education system and you're in judicial territory. Like these are kids who would get expelled from other places. And the thing is, is like these kids are damn bright. Mm-hmm. Like people like to think of these inner cities as these falling, these 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 faltering, sprawling, festering pits. And I'm like, that's not my experience at all. The problem is, is that the resources that could actually give these kids an honest-to-God shot at a life that's better than what they've been shown. You know, we had to beg, plead, and twist arms at corporations like Dow Chemical to give us the money to be able to do that work. And the thing is, is like for them, they're making that, you know, million dollars a minute. It, It would take relatively little effort to have our inner cities turn into their own Wakandas if we actually put the resources to it. I think, I think that, for me, is what kind of hurts my heart on seeing that, that ending scene. Like As, as oh, cool yeah, as yeah. it is, what hurts my heart about that ending scene is like, we, we could, could do, do that, that right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's, at least from my perspective, something I tried to bring into Liminal World is we have all this chronic wealth mismanagement like looking at the u.s we're the wealthiest country in the world we're the only one without things like universal health care so it's part of it is looking at what other and this is where the punk part comes in solar punk because punk is very much you know f the man fight the system (laughs) and that's where this comes in because it's you start with things like energy we need to entirely overhaul that we are talking about a ground-up rebuild you know to get rid of the coal plants to get rid of the gas plants to replace this stuff Sarenth you mentioned DTE earlier about moving towards more decentralized systems like that is shaking up the system I don't expect DTE to you know take that line down right I don't expect our local ones consumers to do that either Maybe, maybe they're listening. Maybe I shouldn't name Joe. Name drop a massive corporation. Yes, go ahead. But I hold my iPhone up. We love our corporate masters. No, Consumers is so great. I pay my bill on time all the time. <laughs> but that's that's part of it. Like totally restructuring our energy systems because we can't continue doing this. Our planet's gonna burn up. And the other part of that, Saren, Saren mentioned food. 
punk as crap, like guerrilla gardening. Mm-hmm. Like, let's plant gardens in inner cities. Yeah. But let's totally rebuild our food systems for that kind of localism, for local communities. Make sure cities are as self-sufficient as they can be. Grow that food on the rooftops. Grow it in those planters you're not using. You know, plant trees. Cool these cities because they're heat islands, right? Right. And then you're also talking about things like, you know, social justice and diversity and also environmental justice. Like the part of that comes in is kind of just absolutely shaking what we have now at its very core and overturning it. Like kind of that that tiller thing we were talking about, turning it over. Right. That's kind of what we're talking about and everything from energy systems. Um, I, I'm going to name... Kim Stanley Robinson has been so inspirational to me. I got three... We're in my home, so I can point at my bookshelf, but none of you can see that. <laughs> but I have New York 2140 and the Mars Trilogy up there. And the, the, these are about as solar punk as you can get without calling it solar punk. He's, he writes in climate fiction, and the guy knows his stuff. So we're talking about this isn't utopian. New York 2140, the, the ocean level is 50 feet higher in that book. And they tried to build walls... You know, in the previous century, it's 2140, and they gave up. Lower Manhattan, I think, is flooded. Mm -hmm. It's called the intertidal zone now. And in that, you get things like the Met building becoming a a residential co-op. Like, people still live there, and they've knocked out some of the windows, and they've put gardens on the... in these towers, on the roof, there's solar panels, all the buildings are self-sufficient, and they meet you know, residential housing co-op. They own that building together. Mm-hmm. And one of the big um, conflicts in the book is when, because there's still capitalism, I'll admit the book's very critical of it in a lot of ways, but one of the big conflicts is when this this housing co-op, which is a lot of your main characters, venture capitalist comes in. You're in great real estate. Right. The yeah, title you're in about, right yeah. now is going to be hot. Mm-hmm. And in New York 2140, even from lower Manhattan, you look up, you know, on the non-flooded zone, and with new technology, there's what's called super scrapers, and they're owned by the world's wealthiest, and they're empty 90% of the time in that book. So they're, they're just these massive technological constructs of, like, graphene and, and carbon nanotubes, which makes them bigger skyscrapers than anything we can build now. They're, they're like... 300 plus floors. Fun, fun aside, that stuff is actually becoming available now. Yeah, yeah. Graphene and carbon nanotubes, ugh, those are going to be great materials. Stay tuned, kids. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're, you're talking, you know, very, very wealthy, very, very capitalist because th- they took full advantage of that. Oh, the, the, the real estate values have plummeted where all these buildings are now underwater. I'm going to buy those up and make that neighborhood a little nicer and flip them. And then the whole time in the book, you're seeing at these just monuments of just absolute wealth and power. And the people that own them aren't even there because they got the same structure over in Shanghai or Hong Kong or whatever. Right, right. You know, they're not even living there. And the, the Mars trilogy is kind of the same way because it... It is basically the building of a different society on Mars, and there's 
there's so much animism in this. I can't recommend this book series enough because you get all these different cultures dumped on this new planet. And so they start building this kind of indigenous spirituality <laughs> of Mars. And it's got influence from like a Middle Eastern and, and a, 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 a Arabian dancing in it. I'm not responsible for the terminology in the book, but there's the very <laughs> moving, flowing movements, right. and at the same time you get this folklore of the little men of Mars, which are basically like these godlike beings that are doing everything, but they're riding around on ants because it's terraformed now, and they have ants, and this is the coolest domesticated animal they've ever seen in their lives, <laughs> right? And then you get the the big man is like the general folklore, and they're like, "Well, this is this crater's big man's footprint, and that's big man's sitting sitting stool. Like it's this weird outcropping. You're like, he sit there, and he made it like that. And then you get all these influences from a very um like global local system where there's a planetary kind of constitution and government." But at the same time, the cities are generally the ones that, that write all the rules. And, the, the, and they have these um, eco-courts as well. Hmm. Like, they have ecological laws because of the, the nature of terraforming Mars. Right. There's the nativist that says, we shouldn't change the planet at all, and why would you mess with this, ge this geology? And the rest are like, make this planet as green as we can, and they become two major parties. So there, there ends up being eco-courts where every project has to meet certain environmental laws. They're like, hmm. you can't do that because you're going to put X amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And being here, that's going to change the temperature and kill every bit of terraforming we've already done. Right. Or you're going to raise the temperature enough where this ice shelf is going to give up and flood all these cities. You can't do that. Because we're, we're, we're talking... Very, very high-tech stuff. Like, there are automated construction robots in that book the size of, like, city blocks. And they, they do everything from ice digging to building roads. Like, they program them and let them go. And they're earth movers that make our earth movers look small. And I'm saying that with, like, Avatar in mind when you see the little people by the earth movers. Right, yeah. That's kind of the scale <laughs> we're at, and they make those look small. And they have... You know, things like space elevators and stuff to get out of the gravity well. But at the same time, it's a completely different civilization structure. And that feeds back into Earth, which in the book, the ice shelves collapse. Like, the entire Earth goes into crisis in the process of this book because all of a sudden <laughs> the seas are that much higher. And they're literally leaning on Mars society to help them out. And hmm. all that kind of global localism starts feeding in, like the corporations start becoming more worker-owned, more council-owned, because oh, gotcha. they're, they're in crisis. The world's right. underwater. They're like, oh, our headquarters doesn't exist anymore, so we got to kind of <laughs> And the whole time there's this thing, what do they keep calling it? Aerophony. It's like this spirituality that runs through all of this about being very, very, in a way, animistic on a new planet while they're building <laughs> ecosystems and a new society. And I, it runs through everything. I've often wondered about that. Like, what is our spirituality and, and religion going to look like once we get other planets involved? Because mm. just the whole concept, I mean, like, 
we are very Terra-centric in a lot of our wording for spirituality. Like, I've always postulated if you guys, if the people that are really into astrology believe that Mars has influence over some of our more aggressive tendencies, for example, uh, if you quote-unquote ground on <laughs> Mars, is it going to be the same as when you ground here on Earth? I've always kind of wondered about these things. And just even think about the... We can see it somewhat in ships right? Uh, now, but like think about the relationship on an animistic level that you have with your car. Now imagine that that's the pocket of gas and warmth and food <laughs> that's getting you through the void. What kind of relationship are you going to have with that, that machine, whether it's got an AI system or not? You're going to have a very animistic relationship <laughs> with that. Oh, there is just so much that is just so <laughs> This is so, why you're an author, because we just battle on, and now you got <laughs> ten blog posts to write. Not, not just <laughs> blog posts, but uh, the Mars Trilogy does kind of touch on that a lot. And also one of our local druids to us here, Rob Henderson, mm -hmm. just released a podcast, Druids in Space, where, where, he, <laughs> where, where he talked about, about some of Wait this. Why am I just now hearing about this? Sounds like we got a Rob Henderson interview coming yep. up sometime or another. Yeah, it, it was fantastic and way too short for the, the material. Being druids done. in Space. Huh? Yeah, and it was just like... I think a podcast he just recorded at retreat or something like that. I right, right. came up at one of their fancy druid retreats. <laughs> Although now my age is showing you because I hear Muppet Show Druids in Space. I made that joke so many times. <laughs> Wait, we had that with Spaceballs. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, she does not believe it. Yeah. <laughs> the Reformed Church of the Druid. <laughs> <laughs> But that's a that's a good point though. I mean, so much of of our religion as, as heathens, as Buddhist tradition pagans, is wrapped up in our local cultists with the earth around us. How dynamic does that change when you're talking about space travel or you're talking about a whole other planet? Where I mean, my gods, I mean, you know, I, I have an intimate relationship here with Yorth here. <laughs> I have to go to a new planet. I got to learn the name. Mm -hmm. I got to learn how, how to relate to it. I mean, my gosh. Well, how weird would it be to go, yes, uh, Earth is in my rising sign? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And even then, you know, as all of us descend into Europeans, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, we, we got those ancestral traditions to tap into, but... None of us are really native to Michigan. Right, like, right. There were people that had that relationship here that we kind of displaced, and it makes this weird, ha ha ha, liminal world thing <laughs> where we're really children of two lands, but not really part of either in a way. That's a good word, children of two lands. I like that description. I think I called it children of two worlds previously, and that's got a better pop to it, but nah. Well, worlds worlds pops better for sci-fi, but in the practicality, the practicum of where I'm living right now, yep. well, children of two lands makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. well, it, I always use the world thing because it's the difference between a thousand years ago and ancient. Even. Well, this is true. Where we yeah, are, you're now, right. That's you're right. Two different worlds, as far as you know, arrangements are concerned. Yeah, right. Well, that's a fantastic point. And so, where do you think? 
animism and, and, and paganism. I know you're more of an animist than you are a, a, a pagan, per se, but... Um, yeah, like, we can splice those. Right, things. exactly. Where do you think that that is going in the practical right now? Where do you think like the community is going in the next 10, 20 years? Have you thought about that at all? Like, are we talking locally? Or? We can talk locally because that's where our experience base is, but or we can talk more more globally. Macro, United micro, States, we something. can talk, you know, United States and Europe. I mean, uh, I don't want to throw you into cultures obviously that we don't belong to so wherever your comfort level is uh, from, from the animistic perspective oh man <laughs> and, and this touches so much like being honest liminal worlds is kind of the fictional version of the animistic project you know the living book thing that's kind of the fictional version of that so where we're going next 20 years Oh, I've been posting so much about this. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You so, so are you asking for a like a general timeline then of what I think is going on? Or? Yeah, I mean, just talk about. I mean, because you you've, you've projected out in a lot of blog posts not only where um, uh, the United States is going or our economy is going, but uh, animism and stuff as well. Just give us some round kind of thoughts, like where where do you kind of think? we as animists and, and spiritual practitioners are going and how are we going to fit into what's happening? Because I know you've thought about it. Yeah, in a way, this falls under the the, the speculation is futile thing because regardless of what I say, I'm going to be wrong. Well, like sure. every sci-fi author, but the history of the world has Your been, wrong's going to be a lot more enjoyable than mine. So well, absolutely. <laughs> My wrongs are fantastic because I don't fail small. <laughs> So, I, I can frame this through, here is what I would like to see. This okay. isn't necessarily no, what's going to happen. That's great. Yeah, go for it. Shoot. Because nuance is a real thing, and the real world doesn't do what you expect. So, we're living in a time where Sarah and I, once again, have talked about this, where peak oil is going to be a big deal. But climate change, to me, is, <clears throat> it is really kind of our bottleneck. It is going to be our big make or break for our species. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to be a woo, we passed through it this year, we're all fine. No, it's going to be a long haul process through the end of the century, if not longer. It depends on well, right now, honestly it depends on how we mitigate this. Right. Because right now there is there's a great book once again on my bookshelf called Light of the Stars by Adam Frank. And that's one of the books that we talked about, the John Michael Greer, The Long Descent thing earlier, and that's a book that really hammered home that's one of a few options right now. The worst case scenario is we go extinct. Mm -hmm. Like, we literally so overclock the planet that everything we know melts down because humans weren't really not adapted for things above a certain threshold. We're very much tailored to this planet. And you said that earlier about moving into space. That's one of the things, total tangent, I don't care, <laughs> that we physically cannot survive in space as we are. Right. Space-faring humanity would look very different. Right. One right, of right. the things Mars Trilogy harped on, and this is well-founded in the anthropology, we have rules and laws for this, is that Mars Trilogy, Martian, the first and second generation of people actually born there, were ridiculously tall because of the low gravity. Like, mm -hmm. the colonizers from Earth were obvious. They were too shorty. 
you're not native here. Like, physically. Right. You right, knew right. it right away. Martians couldn't survive on Earth because it kind of messed with their lungs. One of the main characters visits Earth, and, and he's, like, choking the whole time because his lungs are adapted to lower gravity. Oh, gotcha. And, and different right. atmospheric if pressure. If you weren't planetary-based, if you were all based in a spaceship, that would take a whole different direction because your bone structure would just be... I like bird bones. I just started reading the expanse of the actual books, and they cover that. Like, they're, they're belters that grow up in the asteroid belt. They're like, we don't go down gravity wells. We, we can't. Right. But we can move in zero gravity like nobody's business. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's second nature for them. But going back to the point, so that book really points out that we got kind of three big scenarios. It's four, technically but I combined the last two. So the worst case scenario is extinction event. Like we, as I said, so overclocked the planetary's capacities that we, we cook. And a huge amount of life on Earth cooks too. The, the less worst scenario is kind of a long descent scenario is where that, you know, planetary temperatures go up enough where there's a significant die-off. The worst models were like 70% of the population. 7 in 10. So think about that for 7 of the 10 people around you. <laughs> They're not going to make it. And that's near future. That's end of century stuff. Mm-hmm. Because we're all talking about that. And then the other one was actually a sustainability curve. That we, we act with enough forethought and aggressively enough that... Our population's kind of stable, stabilize, as does the temperature of the planet. That's kind of the big um, Paris Accords kind of thing, kind of the right, two right. degrees or less right. scenario. And that's two degrees Celsius for those, you know, playing the home game. <laughs> <laughs> Any place, not here. It's <laughs> yeah, not America. It's not. <laughs> it makes a big difference. So the, the way, way I hope this plays out. There's a, a great book called uh, called Drawdown. It was edited by Paul Hawken. It's by this coalition of like 200 scientists and they're everything from ecologists to economists. Like these people know their stuff and they've plotted out like three major trajectories by about 2050, which is well within my lifetime. So, right, right. so it's very, you know, 2100, I probably won't see. I don't think anybody sitting here will. Unless, you know, sci-fi. <laughs> so there, there's three main trajectories, and all of them are meant to keep carbon basically at current level or reducing in the long term. And so many of the books are talk about how crucial it is that we do this now. Because mm-hmm. we are, in so many ways, in a bottleneck that any... Um, <laughs> words happened. <laughs> Any high tech civilization would go through because energy use has feedback. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't, in so many ways, and that's why Live the Stars is so cool. They literally ran this simulation on other worlds different than ours. For example, if you move the Earth out a few thousand miles from where we are in our orbit, we'd have another century before we dealt with climate change because we'd be that much cooler. But as it is, so forgot where I was going with that. Climate change. So yeah, you can't 
can't build a high-tech civilization without these feedbacks. Mm-hmm. Like, that is basic science, basic animism. Relationship with the planet. Gotcha. We're going sure. through a crap ton of energy, and that creates heat and carbon dioxide. So, really, you could model almost any alien civilization based on the conditions of their planet on the same thing. We built a high-tech civilization, and that put heat and, and carbon back into the atmosphere, or methane, or you know whatever the atmosphere happens to be that happens to be greenhouse gases. So, almost every civilization we could imagine would eventually go through this and the question is and it's honestly asked in the book and not answered is is it something we can navigate at all Mm -hmm. you know and that depends on so many factors but it's really we have a very thin window when it comes to climate change and everything we do right now matters so much it's the difference between you know a few inches of sea level rise or mm-hmm. a few feet mm-hmm. a few degrees and a few extinct species and entire ecosystems going under right and drawdown I think by 2050 has, has been one of the best ways I've seen to do that and that is exactly what we've been talking about it is everything from overhauling food systems to energy systems transport systems to the very materials we're using Like, plastic is a big one when it comes to oil use. But it's nothing compared to the oil use we do for transportation or for power. 70% of the oil we use is transportation. The other 20%, if I remember numbers, is power. Like, plastics, picking on the plastic straw people, that's peanuts. Like, it ain't enough. Nowhere near enough. Well, like, if I remember correctly, 25% of that 70% of energy use for, for oil went to domestic cars. Yes. If I remember correctly. So, it's not just driving less, it's the entire economic understructure needs to be rehauled so that we're not doing trucking, for instance. Yeah. Or doing electric trains. Right. You know? Doing it, if you have to, you have to do it smarter. Right. Yes. You have to... Yeah, exactly. Like, if there are options for electric trucking. Yes, that comes with manufacturing costs. There's mm-hmm. still lightweight plastics and metals and stuff on those. But it's, you know, kind of the incrementalism thing is having this is better than not having it. It's right. not a perfect solution, but honestly, there's no such thing. There are no perfect solutions, and there's no such thing as a free lunch. Anything we do has an effect. We can't build anything, and I'm talking across the board. You can't grow a plant without some kind of energy use. Right. You can't build a civilization without energy use, and all that has feedback. Yeah, a jungle planet with no humans probably isn't going to cook the planet, but we have to accept that there is no free lunch on that. So a lot of the a lot of the stuff that you've talked about in in the posts on drawdown, something that, that strikes me again and again and again, is that compared to personal sacrifices and personal endeavors, we are monumentally outweighed, and this is getting back to the big corporations again, and, and the giants, the giants. Um, we are monumentally outweighed by the amount of resource that is eaten by, say, Apple, 
in the production of iPhones that's eaten by, say, Schneider and its trucking company. Um, how do we fight giants, then, becomes the question. <laughs> well, actually, I, I was actually headed the same way because Nick is talking very uh, steps about drawdown and, and that sort of thing. And when I was at, I'd asked about where animism is going over the next 20 years, and putting all together what he said and, and the question he just posed, it, it, it is occurring to me that animism becomes really important. And I, I would never want to say that I want to go out and, and proselytize. But at the same point in time, we are going to be vital to a cultural shift, which is going to enable a lot of this stuff. Because if we yes. can start getting people to think about relationships to the planets and the plants and the other people and the transportation systems and the energy if we can start getting people to think of it on a relationship level that's how we can affect the change mm -hmm. absolutely and that is is one of the reasons drawdown as a project hit me so much because it is not just technological solutions right yes right. wind turbines are number two but indigenous land management is in there too Empowering women and girls, education, family planning, that is in there too. In fact, the, the women's section only has three solutions, which is education, family planning, and women smallholders, women landowners. Which yeah. Women own most of the land across the world, especially in less developed countries. God, the terminology is so out of there. So places right, like right. Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa. Places. Yes. Most of the landowners, most of the farmers are women. Hmm. Yep. And that section is only, only only those three solutions. So family planning, women's education, and women smallholders. Together, that is the number one solution for carbon reduction because it affects everything from land management to population size right. to birth rates. It is huge. And another one in there is indigenous land management. Because when it comes to people, I can speak to this as a hunter, it takes so much time to get to know a land well enough to know where the creatures are. You have to learn their moving habits, their mating habits. Like, you right. get... <laughs> it's funny because it's, it's the kind of dual nature of stalking. It's a crime to stalk humans. But you do the exact same thing to animals. I know where they sleep. I know who they're screwing. I know where they go to water. I'm right. watching their windows because they don't have a house. Right. Eh, psychologists and sociologists do the same thing. We just pay for it. <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing. It is, it is even my family property, which is just 12 acres of forest, has taken me years to get to know well enough to go, I could put a blind here because it gives me the best odds of getting right, right. here. Indigenous people have generations, thousands of generations of knowing the land better than those of us in European descent. And I'm going to have to look at it. I'm going to have to look at the book because it is it is a high solution. They're ranked one through a hundred. There's oh, only a really? hundred solutions. And this is the drawdown book, Yes, right? this is drawdown. i got to find my table, but I'm going to keep talking in the meantime. Ah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this covers everything from food systems as well. Reduced food waste is number three out of 100. Yeah, because, wow. I mean, it, we, it's, we it's produce huge. tons and tons, billions of tons of food. That's true. And we throw it out because part of that is the economic system. Like, yep. I've said it before. I'm not shy about it. 
Capitalism is not sustainable. You cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. I love that quote. Period. And the fact that one of our biggest problems with food waste is the fact that somebody can't sell it. You throw it into the trash as soon as it expires, you will lock the trash so, you know, heaven forbid, homeless people would take it and not pay for it. And then it goes right in the dump where it turns into methane, which is one of the, one of the biggest greenhouse gases. Yeah. As we opposed hard- to composting it. Yeah, as opposed to composting. Or letting people eat it. Letting people eat it, because moldy bread is not the end of the world. You mm-hmm. cut it out, you move on. <laughs> Unless it's, you know, penicillin. But hey, you can get medicine out of that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, this co- co- covers everything from ships and transportation, trucking, electric transportation. Something I want to, you've but, mentioned a couple of times that, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, capitalism is not able to be a thing on a finite planet. Well, okay. So what what I think a lot of people equate is that capitalism means markets. Capitalism means trade. And it's not the same thing. No. I think a lot of people have this false dichotomy in their head that you must have capitalism in order to have effective trades, markets, transports, things that, you know, I mean, when I hear, especially on the more rightward end of things, people will talk about, well, if you don't have capitalism, you don't have markets. This is patently not true. No, I mean mercantilism was a thing for how long? For a reason. <laughs> you, you know, I could I could argue that we still have a mercantile system. It's just the mercantilism is defined a lot of times by protected, mm-hmm. uh, protected groups or assets or corporations that protected merchant class. And I could argue that we still have that. Yeah, I don't think we ever truly left it. Yeah. So, finally, found it. Indigenous land management is solution thirty nine out of a hundred. So it's in the top 50%. 38 is forest protection. Like this this book covers everything from technology to rebuilding ecosystems and you know marsh systems to deal with things like floods because there is a good chance the question is how much the sea levels are going to rise. We've seen the hurricanes and stuff recently and how bad flooding was because of urban design. Right. Right. Marshlands, wetlands, river systems are designed to handle that kind oh, of Oh, look water. at the red tide problem they had in Florida this yeah. year. Because that same thing with not managing the marshlands where the, the farm runoff and was farm going. Runoff. And, yeah. Why can't we eat anything out of Lake Ontario? Why can't we eat anything out of Lake Huron? PFAS contamination. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Farm runoff. Farm yeah. runoff, industrial runoff, that kind of We are holding ourselves hostage because yeah. our economic system says we have to overproduce. Absolutely. And coming back to the animism point, like thing really hit me with Donald Trump. There's there's essays scattered all throughout the solution. So <clears throat> after you talk about something like nuclear energy and, and how that's gonna play out, there's an article on reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Oh cool. <laughs> right? Excellent. And it's a great article. You go farther in the book, there's an article that's an excerpt from The Secret Life of Trees that tells you about why the communication systems in, in complex forest ecosystems matter so much. Not only as carbon sinks, but as cultural resources, as p- indigenous people's homes, right. you know, that we're cutting down for lumber. Like in permaculture, one of the big things that we talk about on a regular is the mycelium layer and why that needs to remain intact. Why overtilling is actually interrupting the ecological cycles you want to have as part of your right. basic farming apparatus. Absolutely. 
And, and that's all in there. Everything from agroforestry to regenerative agriculture, all of that is in there. Silver culture and, and even, you know, uh, low meat diets, but also managing cattle in an ecological way. If, you know, I'm not going vegan anytime soon. Right. And that's a huge problem. You can, you can admit that. Joel Salatin is actually, he's a younger creationist, but the work he does on his farm is incredibly regenerative, and he does uh, a lot to, um, a lot of the work we talk about with regenerative agriculture, he actively practices with his herds, so it's not just rotational, it's also what he feeds his cows, how he feeds them. Uh, in what manner he rotates. It's yeah. it's a whole... So it sounds like a lot of the, the smaller resources that I'm reading for more local production and more local ecologies play into drawdown in dynamic ways. Absolutely. So, something that just strikes me because I agree with you on a lot of that stuff. Like, I, I generally advocate towards more distributed systems because there's that resilience factor in there. Mm-hmm. And it, it covers all of that. There's a whole section on these are distributed level technologies. These are utility scale. Everything on the distributed side is something we can do house by house or community by community. Everything from rooftop solar to micro wind systems, small scale agriculture, all of that. Like it doesn't necessarily require big scale system. And, and honestly, I think of it as more of a hybrid system. It does make more sense for utilities to put up massive offshore turbines, right? Right. That's something small communities probably aren't going to do. They could, depending on the size of the city. You could have municipally owned wind farms and solar farms. They did the same thing back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, with a lot of cities going to damming or uh, not damming. I'm sorry, but hydroelectric Hmm. uh, rivers and such. They're, you know, they do things like, even as far back when the when the first water wheels were first, you know, made, it'd be a communal effort to put together the resources yeah. to make the the mills water wheel because everybody profited from right. the yeah. bread yeah, production. Exactly. And so, yeah. if we think about this in a more expanded fashion, is kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah, de- definitely. <laughs> I, I mean, it's c- coming back to that. I think the article was from the Grist that. of global emissions come down to like 100 companies. Most of those are fossil fuel. Right. Mm -hmm. BP, Shell, a couple of state-owned oil companies, state oil, that kind of thing. You know, really big companies. Some state-owned, some not, some private. So, in a way, individual actions, community actions are absolutely necessary, but they're not sufficient, not in the grand scale. So, it's kind of a Drawdown really strikes me as kind of a hybrid system. We need large-scale stuff, but we need the, the small-scale stuff, too. And it's it's really asking us what is the most we can do. For example, here, here in my house, I pay a little extra to the utility each month. This house is 100% renewably powered. For consumers, that's 70% wind and biomass, which is... Eh, they're doing what they have to. Right. Biomass is listed as drawdown as a transition solution. It's something we shouldn't use in the long term. 
but we need it right now. <clears throat> yeah, that's a that's a good point. A lot of people in in the, uh, the peak oil community were talking about how LNG is a transition fuel. Yes. we should not be relying on it any longer than twenty years, thirty years at best. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at what's coming out of the Bakken oil shale, I mean that's destructive. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Same with coal. You could leverage the fact that we could probably run on coal longer than oil, but we're still ripping off entire mountains to make it happen. Right. I mean, we're and, doing the same thing with copper production. Yeah. So the question, I think, is also, it's not it's not one or the other. I think yeah. I think for me, the, the, big, the big thing where everything comes home is, you know, these are these are mountains. Yeah. These are big spirits. Right, right. And what you're doing is you're tearing apart these big spirits to get at the little spirits that live in them. At what point can you say, honestly, I'm living a good relationship with the earth while still hi. Uh very affectionate cat. Oh yes. He loves people. <laughs> um um, our living relationship with the earth has changed over the centuries I think one of the things that uh, is challenging about drawdown is that it requires us to reframe societally, individually how those relationships play in our, in our lives because you're talking about ground up, top down both have to change in order for this to work absolutely right, right yeah, and you know the, the hard part about when you're dealing with science fiction or, or, or stories in general um, is a lot of times it's the, it's the Excalibur uh, approach mm-hmm. where it's the one magical solution drawn out of the stone where the reality is this is going to be a lot more complex. It's going yeah. to be 400 small solutions as opposed to the sword out of the stone. You have a, you have some, you've seen this in anthropology. Yeah. Uh, you you You've seen similar issues in history and anthropology where it's the 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 powerful person syndrome, where oh, yeah. it's an almost a complete overfocus on what the rich and elite were doing versus what the the lower classes were doing. I mean, if we really oh, yeah, want, yeah, right, right, a- absolutely. Like it. <laughs> it, it's it's that weird thing that's that that great men theory, right? Yeah, that great yeah that's what I was picking on. Yeah, is that all? That, like history remembers the Caesars and the Hitlers, right? These are the names we know. Right. But what often gets lost is the small deeds of everyday folk. Mm-hmm. Like Hitler didn't happen in a vacuum. Caesar didn't happen in a vacuum. They both had political support. They had, you know, people at home, local farmers going, you know, I'm helping build the empire. Ha 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 ha. And. In, in a way, they're, they're buoyed by entire systems of small people that nobody knows. Right. And at the same time, those small people have given this one person enormous power who is now messing things up. So, I mean, it's, it's not definitely not a this or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And That's actually the problem I have with a lot of the people that are looking for like Elon Musk solutions. It's like we are so dependent on this man. We're, we're lifting him up as a savior where he is just as bad as the rest of them depending on where you're looking and how yeah. 
how you assess what he's doing. Get him off the cross, asshole. We need the wood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I can say this as a person who's evolved on my thinking on Musk. I was kind of a Musk fanboy. It's like, cool, somebody with resources doing the work I care about. You know, doing solar panels and space exploration. But the deeper that I got into it, and the more I realized how volatile he is as an individual, at the same time he's supported by, well, capitalism, and the fact that he's vehemently anti-union, like openly threatens right. his people <clears throat> yep. yeah. if they even talk about it. And you can go back to the, the production on thing on that, and it comes back to there's no free lunch. He's making, in his Gigafactory, a crap load of lithium-ion batteries. And lithium is one of those elements that is kind of tricky to get to. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of toxic after the fact. So, like Sarenth was saying, it's, it's, it's not so much a, oh, this is, we're using copper, this is blowing up mountains, we should absolutely give this up. because <laughs> We can't. <laughs> we're not going to, and we can't. The question is, how can we rebuild a system, and animism, I think, is part of that answer, where we don't need, we don't need any more copper than, than absolutely necessary, basically. How do we build a system that we're going to design this product from beginning to end to be recyclable? Mm -hmm. At the end, we're going to get this copper back, so we don't have to mine more. Yeah, we're going to have to burn some energy to refine it, but what's that compared to blowing up a mountain? We're going to build the product so we can repair it. You know, we're going to get as much life out of this good as we can. And then at the end, ideally, it doesn't end up in a waste thing. We're going to knock it apart. It's going to go back into the circular economy, and we're going to reuse everything. Right, yeah. So a great example of this, actually, comes from a... I was watching a How It's Made. I love How It's Made. <laughs> and, and so one of the episodes they showed on how car batteries are recycled. Now, granted, it does take some decent amount of energy to recycle a car battery because you have to do this in a safe environment and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. But essentially what they did was they, they broke apart the plastic pieces and they could use those for plastic pellets. They can... Uh, most of the base metals, yeah, you're going to get some slag loss and some other yeah. stuff. But overall, most of the crap we put into a car battery can be absolutely recycled. Yeah. You know, that's one closed, relatively closed system where we can reuse the plastic until it deteriorates. We can reuse the, the lead and all the various acids and elements in that battery until it eventually just gives out and then it becomes inert material. Absolutely. And you can look at that systemically from everything from car batteries to cars <laughs> to, to really everything. How do we design those in a way that makes that as easy as possible? Because, yeah, you got to, if I remember correctly, you got to kind of crunch up car batteries and that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. You've got to have, you have to burn some fossil fuels in order to get the restricted wealth. But comparative to, say, mining lead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of trade-offs. I think you've mentioned that Drawdown does a lot of covering of that. From Absolutely. an animistic perspective, to me, the more responsible thing is let's honor the spirit by working with its body as much as we can before we go tearing any more of its brothers, sisters, cousins, whatever, out of the ground. Ab absolutely. And especially, oil is a real kicker for me because 
animistically, what are we doing? Burning the remains of the long dead to drive our machines. I right. mean, that's kind of dark necromancy from a spirit of work perspective. Absolutely. This is what we're driving our civilization on. So, I mean, if you want to talk about the spiritual foundations of our civilization, the dead. And that's the natives are calling those uh, pipelines black snakes for a reason. They are not good things. Absolutely. I will admit here on air, as I have before, I do workings against them all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm not shy about it. If I'm going to have be a spiritual or magical practitioner, that's one of the things I'm going to be working against. And I'm against I'm against new copper mines until you know. I, I personally have have huge issues with the way that copper mines in Michigan are approved. I think that um, <clears throat> excuse me, I have I have huge issues with how copper mines are approved here in Michigan. So one of the things I've been doing is kind of slowly been poking against that in my own ways. So um, I'm I'm right there with you. I'm I'm not shy about raising up power and asking the spirits to help me out with fighting against all these different factors. I think that we shouldn't be afraid of raising awareness uh, and, and doing the necessary spirit work and doing the necessary work in our lives. Absolutely. And again, I'm not shy. You both know this, but you know, I financially supported Standing Rock. I sent as much non-Nestle water as I could to Standing Rock. I financially mm-hmm. support the Anishinaabe camp now up fighting line five. Line five, yeah. All three of us have. And that's, that's the thing. That's, to me, the punk part of solar punk. Because these guys aren't going to give up. They're not going to go away on their own until the last freaking drop is gone. And they squeezed every ounce of profit out of it. So what's... What's the necessary work to shut down the fossil fuel system? Right. Part of that is drive less. Another part of that is supporting indigenous people on the front line that are literally putting their bodies yeah, on exactly. the line. Yep. Like this, this isn't gonna be the kind of thing where driving less is gonna solve it. No. And I mean, I mean, some of that you, you just mentioned. You know, these indigenous people putting their bodies on the line, and sometimes it needs to be us putting our, our bodies on the line with them in the lead. Absolutely. One of the things I'm hoping to do soon is to take a trip out and offer what support I can. Uh, They just had a uh, a kayak protest on uh, the Line 5 area. Um, My hope is that they keep up the the pressure and that we do everything we can to support them. Um, I think that... Yeah. <laughs> it's if this is our, our earth, it's our responsibility. Yeah. I mean we something I, I almost lost it, but something I wanted to touch on was we know that major oil companies had information on climate change forty years ago. Oh yeah. Sat on it. Oh yeah. Well, you saw the new report by the uh, Department of Transportation, correct? No. Ah, boy, you missed a good one. Let's let's dig into this. Okay, so this is the the current uh, uh, administration here in the United States. Their Department of Transportation just released a report, and buried in that report, if you're looking for it, is an acknowledgement that climate change is happening and that mankind is influencing it. However, they want to take away restrictions anyway because they view the climate change as inevitable so we must make as much profit as we can before that. Holy crap! The, the, the train is already speeding. That is, Let's throw on that more. That is 
in the administration that is, you know, and this is an administration that has locked down on scientific reports. So to have this buried in a Department of Transportation report is quite telling. Oh, my God. No, I had not heard this. That's, that is, and this, that's end times thinking right there. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's about some podcasts I've listened to that have definitely called this administration accelerationist. Their idea is part of their ideology is to burn it up as fast as possible, as much money as possible. And if it's going down, burn it up anyway. But that's the thing. That's the that's the punk part of solar punk. Right. We're gonna have to fight our governments too. Right. We're gonna have well, to fight big corporations and our governments because they keep doing dumb this is, stuff. This is where the fake Christianity comes into play a lot for me because there is this. When I say animism is going to be important to this fight because we've got to change the culture and how people have relationships to these resources and how we use them, is because I'm going to call it fake Christianity because. There's a lot of these people that have that end times thinking that don't worry, we're not worried about any apocalypse because we're going to another place. Matter of fact, there are groups and cults that are trying purposely to bring about the apocalypse as fast as possible. And See, those are people that are rising higher in this administration in our government. I won't even give them the dignity of calling them fake Christians. I think that's a no true Scotsman thing. Because if I have to acknowledge the racists in my midst, I have to acknowledge that Christianity's have a huge boner for apocalypse. <laughs> like, I I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is kind of at the end of their book. <laughs> the apocalypse boner. And, and, wow. And, I think and, I saw that in a sex shop once. And <laughs> this, this is something... That's right. Open the first so, seal. Since we're talking about the animism... And the solar punk. That's something I've said before, and I really want to harp on. Even dystopian worldviews come with their own checklist. Right. They come with their to-do list, right? So if you think of something like Mad Max, all right, we've got to have oil wars, we've got to have water wars, we've got to nuke the crap out of this thing, and then we can have our cool, crazy fossil fuel vehicles screaming like Mad Men. Yeah. That, that's one yeah, of the checklist. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's yeah. one of they the all reasons. Have that checklist. You're right. I'm, I'm kind of optimistic and kind of solar punk because it goes. What is it asking of you to build this narrative you're looking for? If you're in, if you're looking for the end of the world, well, I gotta build my bunker. Gotta get my guns. Gotta get my armor. Gotta grow my own food, and that's you know, not to pick on Sarah. That's why we had this back and forth about about Greer even though I, I think it's it's well done it comes with that same kind of apocalyptic checklist even if it's stressed out mm-hmm. like it, it comes with that that hidden it's hard to frame it, that hidden idea that these are the things that have to happen along the way for this to be a reality oh yeah I and people that. look for that like not to pick on some recent God radical work, but it was just that archetype. Oh, like, no, no. I want you to pick on that one. I know what you're talking about. The Halstead article. This one put a stick up my butt. Bad. Yeah, it, did. it, was, it was wonderful to see because it did for me, too, because I had to go find it. Yeah. So it had this just absolutely doomsday thing. We're basically doomed. 
kind of feeling to it. And it did this dystopian checklist thing so bad. Okay, so we got climate change. We got, I think Peak Oil was in there. He cited Greer's on the Greer's blog. Of course he did. He's like, this is it's something that, that puts that chip on my shoulder. So he cited that. Okay, Greer, archetype, end of the world, druid. And he checked a few other things, you know, governments aren't covering this, we're not doing enough. And and some of it's true, and that's what makes it so insidious. It's true enough that somebody is going to read that and go, yep, yep, because it's unavoidable, can't have it, gotta have it. Can't, can't have it, I better prepare, right. you know, there's nothing I can do about this. And... It's really insidious when it's on a big platform like that. Right, right. Because somebody like me, I reach a hundred some people on a good day. <laughs> that one, tens of thousands. Yes. Yeah. I, I kind of want to to jump back to Greer because I'm going to defend it a little bit because the point of his checklist is to say this is the stuff to look for and this is what you're going to have to prepare if these checklists are hit. A lot of people take that out of context like Halstead did and then turns it into a dystopian checklist. What Greer was trying to do in his work was, this is the stuff that's probably coming down the pipe whether or not you do big things. Yeah. Drawdown's much more optimistic than he is, and I will totally own that. Yeah. And I'm also going to add to that, and one of the parts I'm, you know, not total Drawdown fanboy, it's still... Okay, the editor, Paul Hawken, is an eco-capitalist. Yep. It's still got this... Maintain the status quo. Captains of industry. Captains right. of industry. <laughs> to gotcha. it. The ideas are solid. And part of my own work is, well, <laughs> I'm going to hijack this and put the leftist animistic spin on it because that economic system is not sustainable. So when we're, we're talking about a lot of the uh, cultural and the, the, the checklist of terrible things that have to happen... Um, in any, so we talked about Black Panther. Let's yeah. talk about the other big Marvel movie that's came out in the last year, because <laughs> you know, spoiler alert again, alert again, Infinity War here. Yeah. Uh, how oh. many people could? <laughs> how many people could relate to Thanos wanting to destroy half of the population for this this idea of sustainability? <laughs> but it, it actually, the whole thing with how dystopian futures have this sort of checklist. I've always wondered if we have such an addiction to it because it is, and I'm sure in some sort of psychology books there's a, a term for this that I'm not smart enough to know, but <laughs> on a cultural level, it is our thanatos. It is our death urge. I think I'm wondering if what we're seeing play out is on a cultural level, these two things where one wants to be optimistic and look towards the future, but there's there is part of us as a culture that says we're not worthy. Maybe we deserve to die. Oh, we have that deep green resistance beats this so we hard. Have that, <laughs> we have that built-in Thanatos, not Thanos, but Thanatos, which Thanos is then a character which plays up on that. So as much as we might gripe on the right about this, the left is really bad on this number too because they like to beat the horse of humanity until it's well and truly in the ground. Yeah. And so, like, Thanos to me is actually a reflection of that that viewpoint of, well, I've already, you know, Thanos' own backstory is, well, I got to watch my own world eat itself because it wouldn't stop using its resources. So obviously the solution is to snap my fingers and kill half of everything. <laughs> As one does. Um. 
<laughs> that's one of the things. And again, we've had this conversation. This was a great Facebook conversation with you two. But because we're on a podcast, we got to recap and, and reframe all this. This is... To, to me, like, I had a real problem. Like, I did not have any empathy at all for Thanos. I, I totally feel like he totally fucked that up in, like, the me- worst <laughs> Neo-Methusian way. Right? <laughs> oh, because, to, to me, it's the exact same thing that you did. Well, if we just killed half the people, the planet would live on, right? It's the same kind of, well, there's too many people. And that is... <laughs> from environmental science perspective, just so dishonest. It is. It is so, <laughs> like, population is literally the least of our concern because technology and wealth inequality play much bigger factors. Right. It doesn't matter if there's 10,000 people, you know, whatever, hypothetical, if one of them owns the mills, the factories, and the mines, and is eating everything, <laughs> and the 9,999 have nothing else. And... I just have such a gripe with the humanoid applied thing, and I'm gonna cite Light of the Stars again because he was so good about nailing that out. Is that we are what the planet is doing right now? We're a literal extension of the natural systems, right. and our technology is an extension of us. There's no divide. There's no civilization versus nature. We're literally what this planetary system is doing right now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah, from an animist perspective. We are not separate from the Earth we never were. Yeah, and exactly. And so supposing us as a plague denies us any other existential or other function that we possibly can have. Could, could we act like a plague? Absolutely. But it literally dehumanizes us. It, it does. It absolutely right. robs us of all agency, that we kind of have a choice in this matter. And is our economic system kind of plague Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's why we need to do something different. Because this ain't sustainable. Like, acting like a plague gets a... Growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of a cancer right. cell. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, the, the, the thought earlier when you had, it made the... Uh, talk about humans going extinct being one of the possible scenarios. And I, I have to admit, I kind of chuckle at that. Because, you know... We make jokes about the cockroaches surviving nuclear <laughs> war and stuff. And but the turkeys. But let's be honest. Every other animal spirit on the planet is like, look at those fucking humans. Those son of a bitches can invade the desert, the ice. They don't care. They go everywhere. They find a way. We are the most invasive <laughs> and adaptable that can possibly be imagined. Well, we are, we're much better than the cockroach in surviving Let's take this to a dark place. We have actually nuked ourselves as a species. Right, yeah. right. We have actually nuked ourselves as a species, and yes, it was terrible when it happened both times. Hell, Chernobyl was horrible when it happened. <laughs> Fukushima How, right now. Fukushima, it's right. Ter- it's terrible. Now, that said, we didn't wipe ourselves out, and the people are still there. There's still a Nagasaki. Yeah. I mean, that should that should speak to the human spirit. <laughs> yeah, right. De- we, dealing we not, with cockroaches to make jokes about us surviving. This is the, <laughs> I have no doubt they do. Cockroaches are funny. <laughs> Problems of watching Men in Black. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> this, folks, is content you don't get on other pagan content. <laughs> <laughs> 
Amazing. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that's... I'm that's Sorry, we derailed your train of thought. Again. But anyway. yeah, I mean, you're talking about the survival of the species and, and uh, choice and agency being things we actually still right, retain. Right. You know, I think Agent Smith got it wrong. <laughs> um, you know, we are not a cancer of this planet. You know, um, I think we have that capacity, and from from the dystopian view from which Agent Smith was speaking, oh, yeah. Matrix. You mean the, oh, yeah, the Matrix. Gotcha. So. I went. I I, lo- I I dove deep into the lore of the Matrix when I was younger, <laughs> so I love the entire backstory. Uh, from Agent Smith's perspective, he's absolutely correct because we made the choice to essentially deny our own planet sunlight. I mean, that's you know you can take that as a gloss for nuclear war, yeah, you know, our own ignorance regarding resource depletion, whatever. We have that capacity. We don't have to. We are not plagues. Well, you, ab- absolutely. Yeah. And going back to that that to do dyst- that dystopian to do thing, that's the flip side of that. That so much is kind of drives my optimism because dystopians are best viewed as warnings, shit to avoid. Don't burn the suns. Probably shouldn't give the machines full agency. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make human batteries. You know. Don't. Damn, you just take all the fun out of life, don't you? <laughs> I, I quoted the book earlier, Homo Davis up there, covers a lot of that. And that guy is the kind of writer, he's brilliant, he's brilliant. He's an Israeli historian professor. He writes in such a way where you're nodding along, right? Yeah, yeah, and then just absolutely rips the rug out from him. He's <laughs> like, here's why this is wrong. I'm like, oh my God. It isn't. And at the end of it, that's not an optimistic scenario. Like, he wasn't so much doing, like, the sci-fi thing, but he's like, here's how all this can go bad and why we need to do something drastically different so we don't get cyborg Elon Musk living for a thousand years because that right. would be awful. Right. Yeah, that's the thing with the, that's the, thing with the, the Thanos, uh, yeah, half the population needs to die. Most of the people saying that don't realize that they're the half. Right. Like, the people in the ivory towers with all the technology and their underground layers and all the other stuff because of the economic disproportion, they're not the half that's going away. I mean, yeah, Thanos Thanos in the comics is literally called the Mad God. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is an elite of among elites that is snapping his fingers and saying, you half are going to die. Right, right. As though that's going to fix the problem. Yeah. And the thing that really got me that, that came up recently and I never thought of it it's a great time to bring it up, naturally. <laughs> it, it said, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not huge comics or anything, so I'm just basing this on the movie. It said half of all life, right? Right. Yeah. You've literally wiped out more than half of the ecosystems of the planet. The point they made was the bee. Right, right. You've wiped out a half of all bees. So you have no pollinators. You have no fruit Congratulations, crops. you just killed the ecosystem. Not only did you kill half the population, you're going to starve the other half. Yep. Right. None of the ecosystems that sustain yeah, them half work. Their crops are automatically gone. Half their crops are toast. All of it. Half their algae. Half their fish. Even though even half the, their forests. Even the human beings are surviving. Half your beneficial blood ba- bacteria and digestive tract bacteria just got wiped oh, out. Oh yeah, that's half your cells are gone. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's cool. not good. On a much sadder <laughs> note, half my yeast is gone. Oh no, half oh. the mead. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, you got honey, water, and mead. Yeah, let's go tell all those people that half the, half the alcohol would be gone and see if they're so optimistic about this right. scenario. 
you want to drink your your problems away, but now you can't. <laughs> <laughs> you can't and even you, deal you, with the end of the world. Who can't? Drunk. <laughs> and half the marijuana is gone, so you can't go that way either. Like, forget your cyberpunk getting really high at the end of the world and VR, we, you know, sex programs. That's gone. I mean, you can't even be high at the end it, of the world. It is interesting because it does tie right into that whole... Like, on the far left, you're right. If, if the people are like, we just got to get rid of half the population in the world, it would be better. That That is just as bad as the far right. It's separating us from the planetary ecosystem that we're in. It, it, it creates us, it acts like we are separate and above the planet, which we're not. And, um, you know, so that, that all ties together that same way, that wiping out... Because in the movies, that he, I think it's implied that he's wiping out half of like civilized life or yeah. uh, uh, it's species implied. but that does get into you know when we're talking about animism it gets into that uh, human centric sort of thinking that the only life is intelligent life the only life are those of us that can walk around and you know turn on a television set or drive a car or do things like that 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 Really, when we're talking about all life, well, that obviously only means, you know, People what, like what me. would be defined as sentient beings right. by, by a lot of science fiction standards. So it's Absolutely. a very human-centric mm-hmm. sort of way of looking at things because they didn't, it was implied. And even if it wasn't implied, we read that into it right, right away. Right. You know, so. Absolutely. I mean, um, go ahead, go ahead. I, I'm, you know, defending them. It's humans writing it. I want to see, you know, Thanos from the perspective from a cockroach since we were talking about that. Right. Well, we ate his brains and everything was good. He never clicked. I think it's an important <laughs> difference between the Thanos of the comics and the Thanos of the movies. Because the Thanos of the movies was very much about this, this pseudo-capitalist uh, uh, view of how to save resources. Where the the Thanos of the He's comics was literally in love with death and was courting death. Okay. So his gift to death was to snap his fingers and give her half right, of all life. Right, because he okay. wanted, there was no other way in his mind to impress her than to literally give her half the universe. Mm. Yeah, a bit of a difference in interpretation. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why the movie took the route it did, because obviously that's a little bit esoteric for a movie, and also... Um, you know, the best part about movies is playing into whatever's going on in a current mm-hmm. culture and trying to make you look at it a different way. So I can I completely understand why they went that route, but it's it's something that gets a little lost in translation, but yet still is germane to this conversation. I mean, also just from a from a creator's perspective, I mean, death in the Marvel Universe might actually technically be Fox's property right now because of her romance with Deadpool. Yeah, well. You I know. talk about Deadpool, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, that's a that's a really good point, though. I mean, from from both of these extremes, left and right, humanity is divorced from its humanity. Either we're fallen angels on the far right Christian perspective, or we're a plague on the planet in the far left green perspective. Neither one of which offers us a lot of options for actually engaging our agency as people, as communities, as nations, as as a global thing, or as a, a global collective, it completely, well, 
No, I just, my brain, I, I'm working overtime here because to talk about who owns the copyright on death is probably the most capitalist thing that's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Are, are you done? Yeah, go. I'm done. Oh, I just had my brain fried. Thanks. There's so much to this. <laughs> I'm not even going to touch the copyright of death that I know. <laughs> I can't wow. even right now. But there's... um, And there goes the train. But there is... Shit. <laughs> Lots of it. There is. Someone you're saying denying our agency. I'm going to run with that because... Not, not only were we talking like the animistics perspective, that kind of thing, the end of the world scenario. Mm-hmm. So also Jim was talking about the power of narrative to talk in right now. And that's not exclusive to movies. Books do that. Yes. And, right, right. Games, especially. I'm a huge gamer. Yes. I'm not going to deny that. And it is a great immersive narrative thing. So one I just finished. It's called Horizon Zero Dawn, and this is literally exactly what... This is one of the best game narratives I've played in a long time for the PS4, and it just left me an emotional, bawling wreck at the end. It was this roller coaster of up, down, and what we're talking about is that this... This is an end-of-the-world story. This is a post-apocalyptic story, and basically what happened is capitalism. These all throughout the game are it's the world after don't spoil it I'm gonna play it <laughs> just world building just just world building I'm not touching the story <laughs> thank you but it's the world after the fall of a very high tech industrial civilization mm-hmm. and the, the, the game restarts with these tribal people and they're making do in the remains. Like, you're in Colorado. You're going to see Denver. It's going to happen. And there's not only the remains of that, but there's also machines still walking around, like very organic machines. And there's this full ecosystem to them. And there's so much animism. There's a tribe called the Benuk, literally machine shamans. They got, like, machine parts woven into their skin. And, shit. Oh, yeah. and it's intense. Yeah. It's so good. But... All, all that aside, that's so important from like Light of the Stars, and this is something I really want to get into, because it lays out lays out a um, a different way of classifying where we are on the planet, right? Gotcha. All right. Kind of as a planetary system, as a species that is dealing with climate change, and it, it does it through. Kind of the frame of exo-civilizations, of alien civilizations without going into, you know, the biology or the culture. Because it doesn't matter if they look like Klingon. It matters that a technological civilization is going to come up against the limits of their planet. Just almost by default. Mm -hmm. And everything that comes after is how they manage it. Whether they go extinct, whether you get a long descent type scenario, or whether they're sustainable. And part of that is... In complexity and the energy use of the planet. So it lays out five classes of planets and how they can capture and use energy to do work, right? Whether that's building civilizations or growing crops or just life generally is considered work. Right. So, you know, a, a class one is basically what we call a dead planet. 
for the example they used is Mercury. Okay, it gets sure. a it gets a crap load of energy from the sun. Yes, yeah. it's, it's the hottest ball in our universe. It has no life, no weather, no atmosphere to speak of, and really limited geological processes. It really does nothing with that energy, but get really hot and radiated back into space. A, a class class two and into three, I think, is a planet like Venus or Mars. They have atmospheres. They have complex weather patterns. They can take that heat and make wind or, you know, storms or dust storms or crowd out rovers or whatever. Right. Still okay. waiting for opportunity sure. to wake up. <laughs> and then you get into class three, into class four planets. And these are planets with biospheres. Class four is literally Earth before human civilization. Okay. So you can take all this sunlight, all this heat, and grow complex ecosystems. M-class planets, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing, and it's really cool for that reason. And a class five is an awakened planet, right? An intelligent planet. A planet that not only has a biosphere, but has kind of a global civilization that can give that biosphere a goal, a gotcha. plan. Okay, sure. That sure. is entirely part of that system. And it was it was arguing that we're a hybrid world. We're somewhere between a four and a five right now. Mm -hmm. And the long-term goal of that is going to be bringing the world a plan, a, ideally a sustainable plan, for next thousand years, next 10,000 years, that kind of thing, that we're literally going to become the mind of the planet. And part of our role is going to be figuring that out. Because sure. we're yeah, at the time and point where what we do now matters so much. Right. Because part of that plan might be to go extinct and cook the damn thing. Like, we're, there's no guarantees for this. But it struck me so much from an animistic perspective that he called it, a class 5 planet has a new sphere, which is Greek, I think, for intelligence sphere. Okay, sure. The wireless internet bouncing around us right now is that thing. Right. And we're still building that. We're still developing that. But it came with almost the duty that if we want this to go the next 10,000 years, we need to bring the planet a plan, and we need to build the story that gets us there without cooking ourselves. And that that story is so vital right now, because that is going to determine everything. Sarenth was talking about, you know, the left-right thing. Yeah. Um... First off, saying straight up that Sanders is a centrist, not a leftist. It matters. But in this last election cycle, we saw those two narratives at work. Mm -hmm. Or about the closest thing this country has for a left narrative at work. <laughs> Tapped into the same economic anxiety and channeled it in very, very different ways. Right, On the right, one right. side, we had our current orange slug of a president. <laughs> not shy about that either. And he said, workers, I see your anxiety. I'm going to make America great again. We just got to get rid of the immigrants. Like, scapegoated entire population right, planets. Right. Or, words, entire groups of populations. I knew what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> I hope everybody does. Whereas Sanders took it a very different way. It was, workers, I see your anxiety. And it's because those rich people are hoarding all the wealth. And if we tax them, we could join the rest of the developed world. I even saw it as, and not even just tax them, but we can come up with a plan where we can 
share. Yes, I have empathy for you, so we share. can share. We can share. And those tap into the very, very same roots. Like, on the base level, they were talking about the same problems. Where they went with it diverged a lot. Yeah, I think right. that hinges into the Thanos thing and that kind of thing of where you go with it. Yeah. Like, Thanos could have looked at his planet and been like, I'm not going to do that. Right. Let's go another direction. But he went with, eh, that was half of all life. You know? Right. You, you, uh, the last, you included now, the last, I don't know, two or three guests that we've had, it's been a lot of emphasis on the stories that we tell ourselves. And, and, uh, I think spiritually we're coming back to a point where we realize how important our stories are. I think we kind of got away from that for a while, thinking that, that, uh, it was all the, the, the raw data and the, 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 the intelligence of it, the science of it. But Absolutely. I think increasingly we're coming back to understanding how important Absolutely. the stories are. There's, there's two things I want to say to this. There's a great article called Towards a Scientific Anim- Animistic Science of the Earth by okay. Stephen Harding. It's online. It is brilliant. And the thing that struck with me that was exactly speaks exactly what you're saying is that our problem right now is not a lack of cleverness. Like we have the technical capacity, we have the data, we are smart enough. Our missing component right now is, he called it wisdom. We got more than enough cleverness, but we're not wise about it. Yeah. We, we can, but should we? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and I can make this toaster sentient, whether or not I should. <laughs> Should we do the thing? I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to do the thing. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> and that that just struck with me so much. And going back to... Shit, I had it. Now, now it's gone. So your part one was towards animistic science. What was the other one? Well, it goes back to... There it is. The, the narrative you're talking about. Because even I think he said it that one is that we need a new story. I have seen this over and over again. Light of the Stars ends with it, that we need a new narrative that gets us through this and through the next 10,000 years or whatever, next seven generations, however you want to phrase that. Right. And that's kind of the work where my work with animism, my liminal worlds comes in. I'm. This isn't the work of one person, admitting that honestly. But that's my attempt at, at getting to that story. That we're not doomed and feeding back into that kind of the we were talking about the feeding death thing with Thanos and the here we go, huge huge boner for the apocalypse. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta got admit if we're talking about changing cultures and changing directions, we gotta be honest about Western culture. Like, Christianity, like, I think of Western culture as kind of the bastard son of Roman imperialism and Christianity. Yep. Mm -hmm. For 2,000 years, we've had a boner for the apocalypse. Like, it's in the book that has defined Western civilization. And I think that plays into our worldviews really, really bad. Oh, yeah. Like, we're... I agree. We're praying for the end of the world because some kind of holy salvation is coming. And, you know... Folks like us are starting to openly challenge that. I, I, you're asking me about my my vision of the future, and I hope animism is part of that. Like I want wind turbines with little spirit shrines on them. I want yes, I, I want yes. I want altars to the sun underneath solar panels. Yes, 
Well, this fantastic. is what I want. I want to be the spaceship captain that's got the little prayer booth off to the side because ah, I'm going to get eaten by the void. Please don't eat me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is the future I want. All through Drawdown, all through Light of the Stars, they, they're not specifically animistic, but I'm pulling that out and like trying to weave that together. Because so that, that's, that's what I want. I'm picturing all these spaceships with these little... Uh, uh, you know how like we got the dashboard stuff in our cars now. <laughs> Every spaceship's got a little cow on the front because the cow comes out of the gun gap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to come out of this movie. It's Interstel- a little interstellar, cow. interstellar cow cultist. I like it. I like interstellar it. cow well, cultist. We'll, we'll make this happen. Trademark? But <laughs> <laughs> Did you just trademark Althumla? <laughs> you bastard. Damn it, Jim. We covered the capitalism thing. <laughs> I, I think that hey, listen. Playing both sides. <laughs> Firefly, remember? <laughs> I exist within a capitalist society, therefore I'm going to bend the rules to my will. That's right. But that actually, good. I got you. <laughs> but that actually brings up a really important point, though, because uh, whether we're talking about magic work, spirit work, I mean, we still, at the end of the day, whether we like this system or not, and I'm one of the people who doesn't, um, at the end of the day, we still have to live our lives until we have a different world. So how? I mean, the the question of how do we bring this uh, narrative medicine? Uh, Dr. Louis Miel Madrona is a lovely author, and I love his book, Narrative Medicine and Coyote Medicine. They're both fantastic. I recommend them to everybody. Um, in which it's not just the... So so in his... His is on the, the, the medical side of things, where he's he was one of the guys that helped develop the EKG or something like okay. that. Mm-hmm. So he's he's been an open-heart surgeon for 20-some-odd years. And so when he went to his native heritage and started really digging into it, one of the things that they told him was you need to tell them healing stories. Um, you know, he dealt with, with open hearts, with cancers, and all these things where the doctor holds the central shaman priest role. And what that doctor says is going to happen to you has an inordinate amount of effect. Mm-hmm. And you know, we can go through any number of scientific studies where the, the head person in charge with the lab coat mm-hmm. is wearing essentially holy vestments. Right, right. <laughs> and so the, the narratives that we tell, one, our, one, for ourselves, and two, to each other, matters a lot. That's, what, that's the power of Around the Grandfather Fire, of all these stories coming together. And so I think the challenge is not just coming together and having these conversations, but when we go away from around the grandfather fire and talk about these important things, taking that flame with you, setting your own grandfather fire and telling those stories so that when, you know, when you're writing your next book or when we're doing our, our podcasts or when we're sitting around a literal grandfather fire, we are engaged in co-creation towards that positive holy end. I mean, because what we're talking about is living in a holy way. Shrines on our wind turbines, shrines under our solar panels, household shrines to our spirits. I mean, we are talking about engaged, powerful living where the holy is with us every moment. Mm -hmm. That's huge. And my gods, for a perspective on the future, that's not just optimistic, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's... 
walking in beauty, as the <laughs> natives would put it. So mm-hmm. that's a great vision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going somewhere with that. That was so good, and now I don't have a proper follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to name drop my mentor right now. For, for I work with Kelly Harrell. I'm in my second year work. Second year work, not second year work. And one of the things we're starting to get into is the healing narrative. Right. Kind of telling that story. And that is a big part of my animism manuscript. It is material semiotics, the interaction between science and story. And we we got the science. This is what I was saying previously. We, we've got pretty good handle on, on what we're doing things. There's always more to do, more to learn. But the other part of that is telling the story. And honestly, being honest with ourselves when our stories aren't working and asking what that new story looks like, that's what I've tried to shape with you all here. That's what I tried to shape in the Liminal Worlds book. Because part of that was nanite technology in everything, polluting it. But that also gave network access, internet access, to trees, rivers. Oh, really cool. They start showing up in a very VR environment with their own avatars, representing mm-hmm. themselves. And that's that's what animism is to me. That story is is how we relate to kind of our material existence. And that's that story is the kind of the spirit of things. And changing that story kind of changes our relationship. And the stories we have right now are killing our planet. Mm-hmm. And we absolutely need to change that relationship, that change that story. Okay. I think that's a, a wonderful spot to wrap up. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, thank you uh, for having Sarah and I into your home. And thank you for uh, your wife cooking us a lovely meal. And uh, we are definitely going to have to have you on again in the future. One, one time again... Throughout the the name of your blog and places where people can contact you, the name of your series, that sort of thing again. Yeah, um, you can find all my books on Amazon. Luminal Worlds is my, my most recent one, but Googling my name, not Googling it, putting Nicholas Haney into Amazon pulls my first six books up immediately. Um, my blog is fireiceandsteel.wordpress.com. That also has all my ca- contact information. And my email is fireiceandsteel, all one word, at yahoo.com. And just thank you both so much for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you.